Welcome, welcome, Disability Law Show. We're back at it. Good to have you along, hopefully, for the entire hour. Please feel free to contribute to the show anytime. That's what makes it go forward. Love your emails. Love the uh, the questions as well through mydisabilityquestions.com. And a phone call anytime to either James Farman, Tamara Gopian, them from Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP. Of course, you can reach out at one 855 821 That email that I just mentioned is help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. Lots of those coming through, James. Uh, fast and furious, but uh, we always start off with pal with a uh, story, a week that was something you want to share. What do you got for us this week? I want to talk about returning to work, about the issues around returning to work when you are in the disability claims process, when you've been approved for disability benefits, or even if you're in litigation because your disability benefits have been denied. This is a topic that often comes up because people want to understand what happens if they start the process and their condition resolves or at least improves to the point where they're able to return to work. You know, I, I know insurers are often very skeptical about the motivation of people who apply for disability benefits, but my experience is quite the opposite. Virtually every client I have is adamant that they badly want to be able to return to work. And my advice is invariably the same. Starting the litigation process for disability benefits, or if you're receiving your benefits, none of those are a reason for you to not return to work. The reality is very simple. If you are back at work and you're working full time, you're getting 100% of your income. Even if you're getting your disability benefits, you're invariably getting significantly less, usually something like two thirds, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but certainly far less than what you would be making if you were working full time. And if you're cut off, you're not getting anything coming in. You're having to go out and hire a lawyer in hopes that you're going to be able to recover at least some portion of the portion of your income that you're trying to recover. So it is always the case that being able to return to work is better. And that's why I tell everyone who contacts me that starting the litigation process does not prevent you from being able to go back to work if and when you're ready. And it isn't something that my clients have to ask me permission to do. I say this to literally every single person that retains me as their lawyer, that if you start the process and if at some point during the course of the litigation, your condition improves to the point where you feel that you are capable of returning to work and your doctor agrees or your therapist agrees that you are in a position where at least attempting a return to work is reasonable, then you don't need to ask me if it's okay. If you are in that position and you have medical approval to return to work, then you should return to work. Simple as that. Now, I always need to know that this is happening because there are things that need to be addressed in the context of litigation. It will have an impact on the litigation, of course. Usually, when we're looking to resolve disability litigation, we're looking to resolve for what's owed, not just up to date, but often for several years into the future. Of course, if you're back at work, we're no longer looking to resolve benefits into the future. But we're still able to resolve your case for what you are owed from when you started on leave and benefits became payable up until the point that you returned to work. It doesn't mean because you've returned to work that you're no longer entitled to anything or that your claim is over. It means your case will almost certainly be more modest, assuming you're successful in returning to work. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It doesn't mean that you'd have to go out of pocket because 
uh, our firm and virtually every firm that practices disability litigation practices on a contingency fee basis, which means we're paid a percentage of the recovery. And so if it's a more modest claim, it means the fees will be more modest, but that's perfectly fine. There's certainly nobody working at our firm that is ever going to discourage a client from returning to work when they feel they're ready and when they have approval. And that's really part of the key there. Um, I, I always tell people that first and foremost, you have to consider whether you believe that you're likely to succeed, because in my experience, that is the critical factor. If someone is optimistic that they are going to succeed in returning to work, as opposed to feeling like they're being forced to return when they're not ready, when someone is optimistic that they're able to return to work, uh, then I find far more often than not, they're able to do it. They're able to persevere because it can be difficult when you start. There are hurdles that you have to get past. But more often than not, when people are optimistic about it, when they have approval from their doctors in particular, then they are going to succeed. So that is certainly something that you can do. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I've recently had a case where I had a client that uh, pushed to return to work, although she was not really ready to do so. And it was out of financial need. And that's a very difficult position to be in. And I don't envy anyone who has to make that kind of decision. And so in doing this, she got her doctors to sign off on it, either because she told them that she was feeling better or uh, asked them to do her a favor and they agreed. I'm not really quite sure which it was, but in any case, it's abundantly clear that she wasn't actually ready to return, even though she wound up getting medical approval. And it did not go well. It did not go well. She was not successful in returning to work. But that has put her in a more difficult position because there is now evidence in the medical file of her doctor saying that she's ready to return to work. And so that doesn't mean that she's got no claim, but it does mean that it's an extra hurdle. It's an extra barrier to recovery. It's another argument for the insurers to make. All of which is to say that I certainly encourage my clients to return to work when they are ready, but I would caution anyone against doing so before they are. Tamar? Yeah, I, I entirely agree, of course. I mean, this is really a tricky situation, you know, whether you're within litigation or not, right? Is that key decision of when's the right time to return back to work? We do get a lot of questions around that. And it's actually, it's a medical question, right? I mean, I, I typically will say, I can give you the, the legal side of it, of how it might impact your disability claim, you know, while you're on claim, maybe while you're off claim, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's a decision you need to make with your own treatment providers, your own doctors, about whether or not the timing makes sense. And you need to look into yourself as well and think, okay, where am I from a progress perspective? You know, these policies do have recurrence provisions. There are protections there. But you, once you're off claim with a disability insurer, it can be very difficult to get back on if you're not successful in your return to work. So you do want to have the stars aligned to put yourself in the best situation to be successful. I entirely agree with James on that. You know, I think the other part of it as well, and so I'm going to put my employment hat on a little bit here is, you know, our, our firm does practice in both those areas, in both disability litigation and employment litigation for this exact reason, that there can be a lot of intermeshing when people are in the process of the challenges of, of going off on a leave. So you, you might have gone through a process of accommodation with your employer, perhaps some restrictions and limitations were put in place before you actually went on a full disability leave. And then the other end of it, which is the transition back to work and whether that's going to be gradual, whether there are going to be further restrictions and limitations put in place and how your employer deals with all of that with you 
the employer has some duties as well. Over and above the disability insurer, they do have a duty to accommodate you. There's that duty to work with you on a reasonable basis to see whether or not they can come up with a way to allow you to work and still preserve your health and still access treatment and so on and so forth. Now, look, that, you know, bright line test, is there one? I would say generally no, but again, it goes back to decisions being made between you and your doctor about that threshold of, you know, is it worth me working an hour or two a day or, or am I better off just, you know, taking the disability leave and focusing on my health? But I think what I want to share with our listeners is regardless of where you're at in that process and whether that's within litigation with our help um, or perhaps you're wondering, look, what are my rights in a situation like this? Please don't hesitate to contact us. We do lots of these consultations. We've got lots of lawyers like myself and others on our team that have sort of a hybrid practice that can look at both the employment side of the claim and the disability side of the claim. I think generally what I would what I would say is you want to make sure that you see that disability part of it through. You want to really get that focus and that crystallized before you make some choices around your employment. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're getting advice from lawyers who actually understand both sides of it in case there are issues with your employer or there are things that you need to address on the employment side while you're dealing with your disability insurer and your disability claim. That, uh, that one, uh, that answer actually, that, uh, that entire first, uh, first chat guys kind of dovetails nicely into our first email. This one from Taylor says, guys, my sister was on a medical leave for the past 10 months. Uh, she'd been off and getting disability benefits because of a concussion she sustained when she hit her head at home. After a lot of therapy, her medical team just cleared her to gradually return to work at her desk job, but she still requires a quiet space to work, low lighting, the opportunity to take breaks, and the use of special eyeglasses when she's using the computer. Her employer is refusing to let her come back to work with these restrictions. What are my sister's options when the disability insurer won't pay for her benefits any longer? Wow. There you go. Well, there's a lot going on here. Right. Sure. So I, I think we are probably going to have to break this up and talk about this uh, after uh, this segment is over into the next segment. But first and foremost, there's really two different issues happening here at the same time. There's the uh, issue with her insurer, and then there's also the issue with her employer. Both of those are very much live. And so I think first and foremost, what you want to be focusing on is how are you going to be able to address both at the same time? And ideally, what you want is a lawyer who's going to be capable of handling both the disability issues and employment issues. And of course, we have many lawyers at our firm. Tamar uh, is a prime example of which that have significant expertise in both disability and employment law, because both of these are going to be going on simultaneously. And what you want to ensure is that both of them are resolved in a way that's going to put Taylor in the best position possible, not one at the expense of the other. So it's really critical that these are being dealt with simultaneously by someone who has expertise in both. I think it's going to be important to talk about the specifics of how this is going to be dealt with, but we'll need to discuss that in the in the next segment. So I'll leave it at there for now, and because Tamar is perfectly situated to do this, perhaps Tamar can uh, lead off the conversation at the start of the next segment. For sure. We'll pick it up Yeah, in a moment or two, so uh, stick around for that and keep sending your emails and questions along to mydisabilityquestions.com or that email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. Beyond that, phone call, 1-855-821-5900, and we continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. 
And we are back. Disability Law Show. James Fireman is here. Tamara Gopian is here. Reach out to both or either of them at uh, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. The phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Won't cost you a thing to pick up a phone, ask some questions, say hi. That in the email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, Tamara's James, uh, you know, kind of wrapped up the last segment getting into this one. Taylor's got the issue here of heading back to work. Needs some accommodations, some restrictions. Employees saying, nope, we're not letting you come back with those restrictions. So looking for the options uh, in the event that the disability insurer won't pay for the benefits any longer. You've, you cover both sides of the uh, of the fence. What do you think, pal? Yeah. And so my brain is first going to this question around whether or not the disability insurer should actually continue to pay. <laughs> that's that's the that's the where I want to start with this, because, you know, Taylor's saying, you know, her sister still has a lot of uh, her sister still has a lot of restrictions, limitations. And I can absolutely understand the reasoning behind the sign off for the gradual return to work. But that doesn't necessarily give the disability insurer a pass. And so most disability policies actually have a provision in there that says, if you are trying a return to work, or there's some kind of rehabilitation return to work plan in place, that that LTD benefit will continue partly through that return to work process. So look, policies vary from one to the other in this specific provision, but generally speaking for our listeners, there could be some kind of a top up payment that's still payable by the LTD insurer while Taylor's sister is gradually returning back to work. So it's not necessarily appropriate if there's still a basis for a claim that the insurance company just says, nope, you know what, you're signing off, you know, we're washing our hands of this, we're cutting you off as of X date. That ongoing support in theory should be there financially because what if the return to work isn't successful? What if you know, she's not able to resume full-time duties and work. What if, you know, she's got a recurrence of her health issues and the doctor pulls her off work again? You know, there's lots of these hypothetical scenarios that we often see play out when people are trying to make this um, attempt to return back to work. And so first and foremost, it's I would say it's not necessarily appropriate for the disability insurer to just cut off willy-nilly. Um, but then we have to look at critically on what's happening with the employer. So the employer is entitled in a situation like this with a little bit more medical information than what we would normally advise. What what do I mean by that? When you're on a disability claim on a disability leave, your employer is really only entitled to know your prognosis and not your diagnosis. In other words, they're not entitled to know why you're off. They just need to know when could they reasonably expect you back to work. And so when that process is happening, the back to work process that is, only then if you do have medical restrictions, limitations that require an accommodation, only then does your employer get those details medically in a form, you know, some, some employers will send a functional abilities form, for example, or you can supply a medical certificate of some kind with details around those restrictions, limitations. Only then does the employer get the insight of those restrictions and what needs to be put in place. And then in theory, there is a process in which they're supposed to engage with you to accommodate, to work with Taylor's sister to figure out, look, how can we align these restrictions, limitations, and allow her to do this gradual return? It's not appropriate for the employer to simply just say no. They have to try and figure this out. And in my mind, you know, I think about maybe a work from home maybe makes sense in a situation like this. I mean, look, 
I think that the duty to accommodate, it, the duty itself says it's to the point of undue hardship. So unless the employer can show that it, they would be put out financially in a significant way by allowing this gradual return, I think they've breached their duty. And if they've breached their duty, then that opens the door to an employment claim against the employer if they're not being genuine or reasonable in allowing this gradual return to work back. And so it is a process. It's a difficult one. There aren't easy answers, but I think that the starting point, as I said, is the medical, getting that over to the employer, making sure the insurer is still supporting the process, and then putting it back on the employer to say, well, here are my restrictions and limitations. And then ensuring that you get the either re the refusal in writing or whatever response you need from the employer in writing. You know, oftentimes I see, you know, the insurer will create this like meeting. They'll do a meeting with the claimant and the employer and everybody has a meeting and they talk all, you know, warm and fuzzy around, oh, we're so happy to have you back and these are restrictions. But then when it comes down to it, nothing gets reduced to writing. So what's the takeaways from those meetings don't get documented. The claimant just assumes that everyone has her or his best interests at heart. And then what happens? If that refusal to accommodate is there and you need that basis for a claim, you want to make sure that that refusal is documented. So again, I don't envy the situation that Taylor's sister's in, but at the end of the day, she likely has rights potentially against both the disability insurer and the employer if her graduated return to work isn't being supported by either or neither, right? Um, and so that's the way that I would try and advise Taylor. And I would say that depending on how this progresses, I think it may make some sense to have a consultation. We do this a lot as well. While people are sort of transitioning back to the return to work process, they're trying to figure out, look, what are my rights? How is this going to play out? And I always say to people, Maybe there isn't a claim at this exact moment, but there could be depending on how this progresses. And that is absolutely what we're here to do is to support people in a situation like this, both against the disability insurer and the employer. Taylor, really appreciate that. And of course, you're going to follow up with that phone call, obviously, right? one 821 5,900, working on our way down to uh, JJ. Coming up next, this guy's well on LTD. My department was sold to another company. Once approved to return to work, I anticipate employer will severance me. Without a gradual return to work, I'm not sure I'll be successful. Assuming there is a severance, can you confirm that recurrence clause with the insurance no longer applies? Break it down, guys. Well, and so I would say that the starting point here on a question around recurrence is the disability policy. You really want to get a copy of that disability policy to see what that time frame is and where you're at in that time frame. Because, you know, again, much like the conversation we had around Taylor and his sister's situation, you know, it's this is a process. And so while you're on disability, just because your company's been sold to, you know, another company doesn't necessarily mean that you're A, going to get a severance, and B, you know, what happens with your disability policy. And so I think that while JJ is on claim, and, and I'm assuming uh, that they are on claim, just because your employer, you know, winds down or closes shop doesn't mean that that in and of itself disentitles you to further LTD. You want to make sure that you're still getting your ongoing payments. The disability insurer is going to make decisions separate and apart from your employment status and what's happening with your employer. But there is that risk, right? So there is that risk of if you are supposed to expect to return to work at some point, but you don't necessarily have a job to return back to, what do you do in a situation like that? And so 
What's important to know for JJ is that the disability insurer is unlikely to care. It sounds harsh. I know it's harsh, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand that the disability insurer is bound by the terms and conditions of that policy with that employer, regardless of what might be happening with that employment. And so what will happen is that the disability insurer will do the analysis around, you know, are you totally disabled? Uh, Perhaps it's within the own occupation period of the policy. Maybe it's the any occupation, but the end of the day, they're going to look to see if JJ can return back to, uh, you know, their prior job or perhaps an alternative job. And that's what's going to drive the decision-making around the LTD claim and any thoughts around the recurrence. But then what happens with, you know, an attempted return and then not being able to go back. And then the key question here is the severance. So if in the process of this, while you're on disability, you receive some kind of severance payment, some disability policies very clearly state that if you do come into any sort of income, including termination pay or severance pay, that that is a credit or an offset against what the disability insurer is paying you or should be paying you for long-term disability benefits. So this goes right back to what I was saying from the start, which is the policy reigns supreme here. You want to know what your policy says about this and whether or not this is going to be a disadvantage to you to get this severance and then have the insurance company take a bunch of credit against that because it may mean that your LTD benefits stop for a period of time. You get nothing from the disability insurer because they're taking all that credit for you know the tens of thousands potentially that you got for your severance. So again, really, really important to understand those rights. And if JJ has more questions, this is why we're so well suited to answer them, because I would be able to look at the policy, advise further on any potential recurrence and how that may play out. And along with, you know, if the severance is received, what happens with the severance? The last thing I'll say here is you may not be entitled to a severance if your company goes out of business. So the the timing of this may also be something that's another log on the fire. And, you know, I'm going to take that offline. Maybe we deal with that on our employment law show. But if you've got an employer closing out, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a severance. So this may be the time to actually assert any legal rights you have with your employer while they're still viable and while there's still some potential compensation to be had there. James? Yeah, so I look at this uh, from the starting point of the last question that JJ is getting to here, which is whether the recurrence clause would still apply. And so from a technical standpoint, it would in the sense that the policy continues to be in effect as long as it is related to the initial claim. So the fact that the uh, department was sold to another company and there may be a different insurer involved now is irrelevant. The JJ's insurance claim was crystallized the moment JJ went on leave. And so all of the conditions within that policy continue in effect regardless of what happens with JJ's employment or whether the employer changes insurers. But in this particular instance, would it be applicable is a different question. So what's going on here, as I understand it, is JJ is looking to possibly return to work but can't do it because his or her job no longer exists with the company. And so in that scenario, it's very difficult for JJ to be able to make use of a recurrence clause, which would happen if you did attempt to return to work, but were unsuccessful without the ability to attempt to return to work, unless there is some other uh, employer out there, in which case I don't think 
it would be applicable, usually it's related to going back to the same employer, uh, then it may not actually apply. So the fact that technically the recurrence clause is still live doesn't necessarily mean it would apply in those cases. In any case, I do want to make sure, though, that everyone listening understands that if you are on disability leave and you're uh, your insurance changes for whatever reason, either your employer just decides to get another insurance carrier or your employer shuts down for some reason, that does not change your insurance policy or your obligation of your insurer to continue paying benefits and to continue to uh, take advantage of everything that is within the policy for your benefit. So just make sure that you aren't talked out of anything that you'd be entitled to simply because something has changed at the employment level. That shouldn't change anything as it relates to your disability insurance. I did mention MyDisabilityQuestions.com. That is where we're going to land after a short break. You can always contribute to the show by going there or send an email, as we always like to read out over the course of the hour, help at disabilityrights.ca. And then the phone number to reach James or Tamar anytime, one 821 5900. This is the Disability Law Show, and we're coming right back. Stay with us. And we're back. Disability Law Show. Thank you uh, in advance if you contributed to this show for sure, or shows going forward. You always have the opportunity. We uh, we go to the email all the time, help at disabilityrights.ca, mydisabilityquestions.com. That website's kind of uh, nifty, as they say, because it's free, it's anonymous, and it's searchable. So maybe a question similar to yours has been asked and answered in the past. You can search for it. Save you a bit of time typing. If, uh, if not, just leave your questions there again mydisabilityquestions.com and to reach out to james or tomorrow respective teams always 1-855-821-5900 is how you do that okay james here we go uh we're gonna go to mydisabilityquestions.com by the way for this one says guys while on ltd my department no pardon me it's blake this time sorry email we're rolling on down helps if i scroll down a little bit the emails there we are blake says guys i've had chronic headaches for over two years I took sick leave last year for four months. I had been getting better, but have missed a lot of work since then, and my condition is now getting worse. There are many days when it's debilitating and I cannot function. Do I have a chance at LTD? I had applied for critical illness benefits through our group insurance, was denied. I have documentation and notes from my doctor as well. What do you think about Blake's situation, James? I think there's absolutely the possibility that you're going to be entitled to long-term disability benefits, even though your application for critical illness was denied. And to understand why, I think we need to take a moment and talk about the differences between those two different types of insurance coverage. So critical illness benefits is not something that we talk about often on the show, but it's certainly something that we do Uh, we are retained for on a relatively frequent basis. It's a bit rarer of a policy, though. So what critical illness does is it allows you to recover a set amount if if you are diagnosed with a specifically listed condition in the policy. So most critical illness policies will have something like 10 or 15 conditions that it will cover. And it's typically very serious conditions that can be debilitating, uh, various types of cancer, um, anything that uh, is uh, going to require a significant amount of treatment and time away from work is often listed as well. But the conditions will be very specifically listed within the policy. 
And so if you have a disability that is preventing you from work, but it is not a condition listed in the policy, then you will not be able to recover the critical illness benefit. It's as simple as that. It's either you have this diagnosis and you can medically confirm it, or you don't. And it's when I say cancer, there are various specific types of cancers that will be covered and some that won't be. And so it isn't just simply a binary yes, no, I have cancer, I don't, or some other condition. You have to take a look at the specific type of condition. And that's something that you would want to look at very closely when you're applying for the critical illness. What types of condition does it cover? And is it worth paying that premium to get this policy? That's a question for another day. But in Blake's situation, unless the chronic headaches are related to a specific condition that is enumerated under the critical illness policy, I'm not surprised that the application for critical illness was denied if it's not specifically listed. That would be an appropriate decision by the insurer. But that has no bearing on long-term disability. Long-term disability doesn't require that you suffer from any particular condition. In fact, it doesn't even require that you, you have a diagnosis for the condition that is affecting you. What is required is that you are suffering from a medical condition, whether you know what it is or not, and that the medical condition is causing functional limitation that is preventing you from being able to work in your own occupation. That's what's required for long-term disability insurance. It does not require a specific diagnosis. And so that's why Blake's situation is different under LTD than it would be for critical illness. The, the debilitating headaches would not be something I would expect to be covered for critical illness unless it was related to an underlying condition covered by critical illness, but could absolutely be relevant in the context of LTD. As long as Blake can show that these chronic headaches are preventing him from being able to work, then they are absolutely compensable under LTD. And if the insurer says otherwise, but your doctors are telling you that you can't work, that these headaches are preventing you from being able to function in your job. And certainly if they are chronic, if they are happening on a daily basis, if they are difficult to manage, if they prevent you from being able to concentrate, uh, then I can absolutely imagine many scenarios where that would be a legitimate claim for LTD that claim were to be denied, I would absolutely challenge that litigation. Tomorrow, what do you think, pal? Well, I, I agree with James on, on the challenge. I, I've actually represented lots of people who have chronic headaches as their primary disabling condition. And I think that we see resistance, though, from disability insurers when there's a demonstrated level of work, right, and function. And I think that's that's the challenge with Blake is that he has had periods where he's worked and periods where he hasn't worked. And we often see disability insurers using that strategically to deny otherwise valid disability claims. And I think the details there are very important. I entirely agree with James on the idea of, you know, look, diagnosis versus symptoms. And I'd also add that, you know, the reality is, is that can he do the essential duties of his own occupation? That That's really the starting point of the analysis. And so if those essential duties can't be completed, and, and you know, again, it depends on what the occupation is. But, you know, if you think about most jobs, you know, <laughs> chronic headaches would really prevent you from doing most jobs. 
And so in a situation like that, no hesitation to, you know, pursue the LTD claim. And if it is resisted to pursue it even further with our help with a legal claim. And on the critical illness side of things, you know, I would say, yes, it is important to review the policy. You know, yeah, we're not insurance brokers. So you want to make those decisions yourself about whether or not the premium makes sense. And I would also add policies like that have a two-year contestability period. And so within those first two years of coverage, the insurer can just simply void the policy if they think that you have health issues that you didn't disclose when you applied to that policy. And so why do I mention that is because when you apply for policies like that, like critical illness, you know, and disability mortgage protection and some other products that we also work with and deal with, you want to make sure that you're being very clear and providing responses to those initial questionnaires about your health so that there are no barriers down the road for the insurer to simply say, look, if we had known about your back condition, we would never have covered you for CI, critical illness, or some other piece of coverage. And they can do that fairly readily within that first two years. Though again, this is something that we work with people on all the time. And if they haven't done that properly, that can also be a good basis for a claim for critical illness against that disability insurer. And with that, we got to get into a quick break. We'll return from that shortly. More of your email is on the way. Help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number after the show to reach James or Tamar, 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue more. The Disability Law Show is just ahead. All right, Disability Law Show, a few minutes to go here after the show. Continue reaching out, no problem. James and Tamar have a team with you. And we'll get back to you, have a conversation with you on the phone, one 855 821-5900. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca. We're going there, guys. Next email, Allison says, uh, James, tomorrow, thank you so much for uh, for your answer. My doctor wrote a note that I shouldn't be sent for another IME as it worsens my disability, but my insurance provider has completely disregarded that note and threatened to cut me off if I don't go for another IME. What are my rights? So... IME, what is that? For those who might not know what that acronym is, it's an independent medical examination. And so I want to start there because it is a, it's a misnomer, right? It's not independent, folks, okay? The insurance company is hiring an expert to have you assessed by one of their own doctors, and they will provide very specific questions to that doctor to have answered after they assess you. And so questions will include is this person disabled, which is actually a legal question. But anyway, they will ask that of the doctor. They will ask what your prognosis is. They will ask about treatment. And really what they're looking for is typically a basis to to deny the disability claim, right? That is why they are spending money on an assessment like this is because they are looking for a certain answer and a, and a basis to, to deny that LTD claim. And so it's important in situations like this that people are prepared. Allison is prepared for that independent medical ex- examination that she advises her doctor that this is happening. And, and I suspect all of that's already happened, right? Because she tells us that she's already been to one IME and now the insurance company is asking her to attend another one. And so what are the rights? That's what she asks us around this. So absolutely you want transparency around why the second IME is being asked. Is it the same specialist as the prior IME or is it a different specialist? Does the IME deal with your actual disability or is it the insurer simply looking to satisfy some other element of your claim that maybe isn't relevant to the disability claim? And why do I say all of that is because 
you really want to take a measure around whether it's reasonable for the disability insurer to be asking for the second IME. Most policies will have something in there that says, you know, if we require you to be assessed, you must attend that assessment. And they will, the disability insurer will tie the ongoing disability payments to your requirement of attending these kinds of assessments. But courts have been clear that the guiding point is reasonableness. So if they sent you to, let's say it's a physical uh, IME, and that was done six months ago, and it not much has changed from a physical perspective, or you're you know continuing to have symptoms and so on, would it be reasonable in a situation like that for the disability insurer to ask you to attend another functional assessment six months later? I think that's really your guiding point. And then on top of all of that, you have Allison's own treatment provider saying, look, the last IME made her worse. I don't think that she should be going to another IME. And that is a fair basis to resist the disability insurer's requirement for her to attend again. Now, the practical reality is that it could lead to a premature cutoff of her disability benefits anyway, but she would be in an excellent position to challenge the disability insurer when her own doctors have supported that she shouldn't have been attending it anyway. But I really would feel better about that kind of advice to Allison if I knew exactly what the basis of her disability was, what was the first IME, and what is the proposed second IME, and whether that's with a different provider or some other, other specialist that's different than the first IME that was required. Because you can see in a world that if you've got a fairly complex disability claim that has a physical component, perhaps, and a mental health component, that the disability insurer may want an IME to address both of those components of your overall disability claim. James, what do you think? I agree with everything that you're saying, of course, Tamar. Uh, I, I think very critically, what is this new IME? What is the specialty that we're talking about? Even if we're just talking about physical, there can be scenarios where it would be appropriate for an insurer to have a second IME, uh, one perhaps from a, a doctor specializing in the particular area of disability, another a functional capacity evaluation to see what you're actually able to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I could understand an insurer wanting to have both of those. It would not be appropriate for an insurer to do a repeat of the same specialty within a reasonably short time frame. That's where I would certainly push back. But if it is not that, my inclination is to advise people that even if they don't want to go, and no one wants to go to an IV, but even in that scenario, you are generally better served by going to the IME. And not everyone is going to agree with me, and I know Tamara doesn't always agree with this, but my experience in IMEs within the within the LTD process is that as opposed to the doctors that are hired to just do paper reviews that don't actually assess the claimants in person, when someone is actually sent to a doctor and is assessed in person for an IME, I find more often than not the IMEs wind up supporting the claim or are at worst neutral. There are occasions where that doesn't happen, where it will undermine and give the insurer support. But more often than not, I find that is neutral or even helpful. And in the context of having submitted to an IME that confirms that you are disabled from being able to work, it puts the insurer in a very difficult spot. And from a practical level, if the insurer has gotten to a point where they've decided to spend the money on an IME, it means that they are looking for a way 
to get out of paying the benefits. If you don't go to the IME, you're almost certainly guaranteed. Even with your doctor having said that the IME isn't appropriate, you're almost certainly guaranteeing that the insurer will cut off benefits. Now, I agree with Tamar. If your doctor has said that's inappropriate, you're at least in a better position if they do cut you off to challenge it in litigation. But first and foremost, you want to extend the benefits for as long as you can without having to do that. And if the insurer is gearing up for that, and the IME is the next stage, that may actually wind up helping you in some situations. So consider that as well. But having said that, if especially if we're talking about in the context of a mental health claim, if having gone through a previous IME has had a significant impact in your mental health, in your perhaps anxiety or depression, and caused a significant exacerbation the last time around and your doctor is saying no this is really inappropriate it's going to actually set my patient back significantly that is absolutely a situation where i would push back on especially if the insurer has been provided with the clinical notes following the previous ime that confirm that having gone through that process was very detrimental and exacerbated the pre-existing condition then I would absolutely push back. And even if the insurer is going to cut you off, I think you have to protect your own health first. And if it needs to be the case that you start litigation, you start litigation. But I wouldn't submit to it if it is, in fact, going to make you worse. And with that, guys, we are done and out of time. Appreciate all your emails and uh, reaching out through mydisabilityquestions.com. You can continue to use that uh, website anytime you would like, and maybe your uh, your question will appear on a future show. The emails we uh, get out of here is help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. Finally, the phone number to reach James and Tamar anytime, one 855 821 We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.